Amen. So today's passage in our walk through Acts covers several different mini-stories. The passage began with an account of how Paul went and preached in a synagogue for several months. So Paul's process, as he was traveling around, he left Jerusalem and traveled around telling people the information and news about Jesus and the difference he could make in their lives. And his practice was to go into places and speak in the Jewish synagogue first and teach there, and then eventually move into Gentile spaces. Usually it's because the Jews would get frustrated and would kick him out, which is what happened here. So we spent two months in a Jewish synagogue, and then the passage tells us that then he moved to the, hall, the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and he preached there for three years. Excuse me, two years. And he, the, there was a, a, a period of time in the middle of the day from about 11 in the morning until 4 in the afternoon when everybody took a break from work. So they'd work before then and then they'd work after then. I kind of like that idea. And uh, in that break period, people would go and would hear Paul teach. So every day, every day, for two years, he taught there. Now, as we covered a few weeks ago, in this city of Ephesus, it was a major ancient port city. So places came from all over, from Africa, from Greece, from, from Asia, and every, every place came through this port city, lots of traffic, lots of trade, and so people were constantly coming and hearing Paul teach and then going back to their places, back to their cities, back to where they came from, and spreading the message of Jesus. And so the Bible tells us that in this way, all of this area of Asia was reached because of Paul's faithful and consistent teaching in that place. So that's how this begins. And then it gets down to verse, uh, several verses down in verse 11. It says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. And it said, even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. There was a great display of the miraculous, great many signs and wonders that this message of Jesus was true and that Jesus had truly come. Then we get to the section of the passage that we're going to focus on today. And it's from Acts 19, four verses, verses 13 through 16. 
And I'd like to reread this part to you. Verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. Verse 15, one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. And that's where that deliverance story ends. It's a giant failure. We have this priest who has seven sons. They see a need. They're going about and they're, they're bringing healing to people. They're casting demons out of people. They're delivering people from oppression and from bondage. And they have not met Jesus personally, but they saw the power in the Apostle Paul. And so they said, we're going to use this power that we see, and we're going to use the name of Jesus, we're going to use the name of Paul, and we're going we're to use this to deliver demons from people. So apparently they're doing this with, with at least, it appears to be some degree of success. But verse 15 tells us that one day, then evil spirit talks back. And he says to them, I know Jesus, I know Paul, but who do you think you are? I haven't heard of you. I don't know your name. And then the man who has this, this demon in him is overpowered with this supernatural power, this supernatural energy. And through this man, this demon then jumps on the seven sons of Sceva, beats them up, scratches them, injures them so that they are bleeding, tears their clothes off, and gives them such a pounding that the men run naked and bleeding from the house. So whenever you have a passage like this in the Bible, you have to think, what is this here for? Why is this in the Bible? What is God trying to communicate to us through this story? through this historical account that happened. This is, this is an account of when it didn't work. It's an account of when someone said, oh, we believe that we have power over the devil, we're going to cast out this demon, and then it doesn't work. So why would the Bible include a story of failure? I'd like to dig into this a bit today. And the first point, the first section that I want to focus on is kind of a foundational point, but I think it's one that we need to spend a few minutes on. And it's this idea of letter A, here are some demon basics. Evil spirits exist and have influence. Now this is a foundational thing that I believe we need to just acknowledge and spend a moment accepting. We see in the Bible Jesus casting out demons we see Jesus giving authority to his followers to cast out demons. We also see Jesus teaching about demons and hell and Satan. And so we have a scriptural precedent for a lot of stuff that has to do with oppression by evil spirits. We have a lot of the Bible telling us that Jesus does this kind of work, and he talks about hell, and he talks about Satan, and he talks about these things, and yet we get into these conversations and we get squeamish, get a little nervous. Some of you right now might be thinking, oh, if I would have known that this was going to be the Bible today, I wouldn't have come today. And we get uncomfortable with some of these things. 
See, we would rather a lot of times pretend that we don't have this mortal enemy. We, we would rather think about, oh, Christianity makes all of us nicer people. Let's just all be nicer. Where Jesus says, you're in a war, and there is an enemy, and I have overcome this enemy. And the thing is, is if we're going to believe in Jesus, if we're going to believe that he's who he says he is, then we have to believe his words are true, and then we have to accept this supernatural stuff. So I'd like to take a few minutes and go through seven points, just kind of a foundation of things that you should know about demons. In, in, a, in a message like this, in a passage like this, I always want to pause and say, as Christians, our focus always needs to be primarily on Jesus. We don't want to have our, pr our focus primarily be on the devil or, or on demons. That If we start fixating on that and that becomes our primary thing, we, we get off-center. But if we keep Jesus primary, which is what we need to do, then we can look into these things more deeply. So the first thing, number one, demons are fallen angels who, along with Satan, chose to rebel against God. So, so they're, spirit, they're spirit beings. They're fallen angels. They chose rebellion. Number two, demons follow Satan as their leader and attempt to thwart God's plan and God's people. So they are causing trouble. They are trying to get in the way. They are trying to stop. They are trying to pause. They are trying to keep God's plan from happening. Number three, demons are spirit beings, and they have ability to take possession or control of a physical body. Now, that's what we see here in this passage, right? We see a human body that, has been that is being controlled by a supernatural presence that is not one's own soul. It's an outside supernatural evil presence. And so there is a, there's a possession, there is a control that they are at sometimes able to have. So let me explain that a little bit further in point number four. For Christians, demons cannot possess Christians but they can influence them in stubborn traps. So let me, let me just explain that a minute. So it, Christians, we are told that if we believe in Jesus, we have been given the Holy Spirit, and that God's presence dwells in us. We've been told that we are sons and daughters of God, and that we belong to God, and we are his. So it's not possible for the enemy to own us like that. The scripture says we've been bought at a price. We belong to Jesus. However, it is possible for Christians, it is possible for believers, and I think it's common for believers, to have areas in which the devil influences them, sometimes in persistent, stubborn ways. We can experience temptation of the enemy picking at us. Anybody experience temptation ever? Have you, how about a demon who can, who can just cause oppression? A demon who can cause a sense of heaviness or a sense of stuckness, a sense of being caught in something that, it's not just a human lack of discipline. There's, just, there's, a, there's a stronger emotional or spiritual bond there. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. I think we can be, and that we often are, even as believers, affected to varying degrees by demonic spiritual powers. Because if you are following Jesus, there is a fight going on for you. If you are doing the work of God, guess who's not going to be happy about that? If you are engaged in joining God in mission, guess who might try to thwart that? 
And so we are not exempt or excused or somehow have the ability to avoid the, the devil's influence and tactics. We can get rid of it. We can cast it out. We can experience freedom from it. But we are vulnerable to it here in this world still. Point number five. Demons who encountered Jesus in Scripture knew who he was, and they feared him. I like this one. In, in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus encounters some demons, and they say to him, What do you want with us, Son of God? What do you want with us? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Th th see, they know in the end times, it's their end is destruction. They know that's coming. They know that's their future. And so then when they encounter Jesus, they're like, Jesus, what are you doing here? Is it the end times? Like, is this, are, are, are you coming to torture us now? Like, what's going on? See, they know who he is. They know who he is. They know his power. Demons, demons, church, are not atheists. They believe, they know that Jesus is real. Number six, demons are liars. And they seek to destroy and deceive anyone they can. Now, if, if you know anything about lying you'll know that the best lies are not outrageously outlandish things. The best lies are taking a little bit of truth and then changing it just a little bit. The enemy loves to do that. The enemy loves to take a little bit of truth and shift it and make you believe that. And then you get all confused. Well, I don't know if this is true. I, I don't know. Well, you, I can kind of see it this way. You know, I can kind of see how that could be. The enemy loves to mess with that. But the, the demons are liars. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be self-controlled and alert, Christians. Your, your enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen: Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Let me tell you what that means. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He puts on a mask, and he presents himself as, I am light, I am truth, I am, I am goodness. He's a faker. Satan masquerades as an angel of light, and then it goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 11, it is not surprising then if his servants, the demons, masquerade as servants of righteousness. Let me just say, our American culture right now is so interested in deciding righteousness. This is righteousness. No, this is righteousness. No, this is righteousness. No, this is righteousness. Jesus says righteousness is only found through him. But I've had conversations with people recently who have said, well, I don't believe that Jesus is righteous. What do you do with that? I, more than one conversation, church. More than one. We are making up our own sense of righteousness. We, you read the Bible, and you read about what Jesus does in the Gospels, and, and some of you would say, well, that doesn't sound very nice. That doesn't sound like Jesus. And it's like, it actually is Jesus here. You have to believe what Jesus says here. Jesus says all kinds of crazy stuff, and you're not going to know what it is unless you are in your word. Otherwise, we're making up what we think righteousness is. We have this sense of morality that is defined by culture and by our ideas and by our human ideals. Jesus is the one who gets to determine what righteousness is. Demons will twist these things and will cause us to think that certain things are righteousness that are not. The only way we can know it is through Jesus. Demons are liars. And point number seven, demons are enemies of God. But they are defeated enemies. 
they are defeated enemies. As Christians, we have to have both of these things in tension. We need to hold the truth that demons are enemies of God, and if you're walking with God, then they're enemies of you too. But also, so hold that reality, but also hold in the other hand, but they are defeated. They are defeated. That it's just a matter of time before the final scores are in, and everybody, but everybody knows how the end is going to go. That's how it is for the demons. They know how the end is going to go. They're just seeking to create as much havoc along the way until we get there. We know, as believers from the Bible, what will happen to God's enemies at the end. But meanwhile, they're seeking whom they can devour and what havoc they can wreak now. We hold on to, as people of faith, we hold on to the fact that Jesus has won. That Jesus is supreme, that Jesus is the victor. We don't live in fear of demons or the devil or hell. We, we don't live in fear of that because we know Jesus, who is our savior, who is our rescuer, who has conquered and triumphed over the evil powers. Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities. He disarmed them. That means he knocked the weapons out of their hands. It means he knocked out their power and their ability to, to cause trouble. He has disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them. That means he's going to make a fool of the devil and his demons, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus has won. And so as believers, we take seriously both the threat because it is real. Because we have here in the, in, in the Bible a story of an exorcism that went bad. It's a threat. But we also hold, on the other hand, the power and the victory of God, and that as God's people, we have his power at work through us. Just some foundations about understanding demons and the supernatural, and something that we don't always talk about. So what, what does demonization look like? And let me just pause for a minute and talk about the word demonization. We, some translations, including the one we use today, talk about demon possession. And uh, maybe a more helpful description, one that I usually use, is demonization. Because Christians cannot be possessed by demons. Non-Christians can, like in the passage that we're reading about today. But demonization is a bit of a broader term that includes how we can have spiritual strongholds in our lives, even as Christians, that it's not, it's not possession of not a full taking over, but there's an influence of the demonic. So I would typically use the word demonization just to be a little bit clearer, it, and it's in alignment with the, with the Greek definition as well to, to do that, so it's not anti-scriptural to do so. But what does demonization look like? I think it can look like a lot of things. I think it can look dramatic, like in the, in the passage we read where this evil spirit comes on in a supernatural display of power and literally beats up seven brothers. I kind of wish I could see what this looks like. But... Uh, just because I'm curious, but I mean, it can be dramatic. I mean, it can be like the movies. It can be like what you see on Netflix. It can, it can, be, it can be that sort of thing. Uh, back in April, or in May, actually, we had our, our mental health awareness month, and we, and we did a mental health awareness night here at the church, and one of the things we discussed was the difference between what's mental illness and what is demonization. And, and we taught, we, we fleshed that out, had some great dialogue about that, but one of the things that came up from it is sometimes they kind of look alike, and they're two distinct things, and both are legitimate and both are real, but sometimes they can, one can kind of look like the other. Another, another thing of what demonization can look like, we've got those dramatic things, 
But I think even more commonly, especially in America, demonization can, can look like more of a battle in our mind, bondage in our mind. It's, it's false beliefs we have. It's lies that we hold on to about our own identity. We, we, we don't believe we're fully sons and daughters of God. Uh, it's often it can come from wounds from our past that have not fully healed, or forgiveness that we haven't given to other people yet, or pain and hurt that we still have. And the enemy loves to get into those wounds and cause them to fester and ooze. And, th- and not, not that they are always all used by the enemy, but sometimes the enemy uses those things and then creates strongholds and areas of bondage that affect us for many years. Often, a demonic stronghold, I think today, in many of our lives, looks like uh, what happens in our heads, in, in our minds. Second Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul writes, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. He's talking about supernatural strongholds. And then we read this out loud with me, verse 5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We are demolishing these false teachings, these false arguments, these false pretensions that set itself up in opposition against the knowledge of God. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes this, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. He's talking about being taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies, through a, philo- through a philosophical orientation toward life, through a way of thinking about life, through a, wor- a certain kind of worldview, for a certain kind of defining of righteousness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies. You are at risk of being taken captive and being sucked in. You see, the devil lies, the devil twists, the devil warps, the devil deceives. And in today's passage, we have this story of Sceva's sons who fail. And, and the, they go to confront this demon, and instead of them confronting the demon effectively, the demon confronts them and says, who do you think you are? Now, th- this demon... This demon has some discernment, right? This demon has some discernment because he knows that these men are not connected to Jesus. He knows there's a difference between what we saw in Jesus and what I saw in Paul. There's a difference here. The evil spirit recognizes who is associated with Jesus and who is not. And church, I'm wondering, would an evil spirit recognize if you belong to Jesus or not. He knows. He knows what's up. He says, Jesus would have been a threat. Paul would have been a threat. You're no threat. 
And so not only does the demonized person not get healed, the demonized person then inflicts wounds. And in the efforts of the seven sons of Sceva, they are wounded by their enemy. Church, if you are not in a relationship with Jesus, if you are not in alignment with what the Holy Spirit is doing, it is possible for you to to wrongly handle the power of Jesus and for you to to misuse it. And there is a cost to this. So what goes wrong here? What goes, what, what actually went wrong? There are a few things that, that went wrong. What went wrong? The, the seven sons of Sceva knew Jesus in name only. Right? They, they weren't identifiable as believers. They didn't, they weren't, no one, no one could look at them and say they're believers in Jesus. They were doing good things. They were doing good things. They knew a lot of stuff. They were knowledgeable. Some of you are doing good things. Some of you know a lot of stuff, maybe even about Jesus. They did. But they had not put their trust in him. They were not following him. They were doing good things and knowing a lot about Christianity, but that didn't make them Christians. Also, the seven sons of Sceva wanted the power more than they wanted the person. They wanted the display. They wanted the results. They wanted the freedom for this person more than they wanted Jesus. They wanted the benefits of Jesus without following Jesus. I think we fall into that temptation, church. We want all of the good gifts of Christianity. We want, we want the grace. We want the mercy. We, want, we definitely want the forgiveness. Like, we need all that. We don't want to give it to other people as much, but, you know, we, we at least want to receive all that. We want all the gifts that God gives, the promises, the hope, the future, the, yeah, the peace, the joy, the love. We want all of that fruit, but we don't want to follow. That's our, that's our tendency. And so many of us want the benefits of Jesus without following Jesus. In the words of Mark Sayers, they wanted the kingdom without the king. Who's in charge? And if we try to do the work of Jesus without living in the life of Jesus, we too will probably be wounded in our attempts to do so. And we might also be overcome by evil. So they weren't. They weren't believers in Jesus. They didn't have that saving relationship with Jesus. And so they were overcome by evil. They could not stand because the enemy is a threat. Ephesians 6 warns us, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Your struggle right now is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Ephesians 6. You don't have to be overcome by evil. If you are a believer in Jesus, you have the power of God in you. So, 
there's this story here. There's this, uh, there's this account, this historical account of failure in the Bible. That's, that's one way that you know the Bible is true is because it doesn't sugarcoat anything, and often people look bad, and uh, this is one of those times. So you have these people who try to do a good thing, and the results fail miserably. Even though they're doing this in the name of Jesus, the results fail miserably. To our knowledge, we, we don't know what happens to this man. We don't know if he's ever delivered or not. The, the, the Bible doesn't tell us. But this is what we do know. We do know the response of other people who heard what happened. And the passage continues in Acts chapter 19, verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. They hear and they say, we better pay attention to Jesus. We better pay attention to Jesus. And they're moved. They're moved to then confess. To confess their sins publicly. How, how does it say? Publicly. And then it says the number of those who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together. And they took them and they threw them in the fire and they had a public bonfire and they burned. They burned them. And they said, we're done with this. We're done with this. I don't know that sorcery is something that we all naturally experience here in the U.S. on a, on a regular basis. But I do think that there are many things in our lives that, that have a spirituality that is separate from Jesus. I do think that for a lot of us, we dabble in other spiritualistic kinds of things. Things that are different from Jesus, but have some sort of spiritual power or spiritual influence or spiritual authority. And anything other apart from Jesus is a, a false spirituality. In fact, Jesus, any spiritual things that are not of Jesus, Jesus doesn't want. The Bible specifically talks about magic, astrology, sorcery, other religions. Jesus isn't interested in that. Jesus is, is exclusive. He's unapologetic about that. He says, I'm it. I'm not interested in sharing kingship in your life with anybody or anything else. And any pursuit of other spiritual things is, is in conflict with what I want for you. He's unapologetic about being exclusive. He says it's how it is. He, he, he doesn't want anybody or anything else on the side. He says, I'm it. And so, church, as, as I've thought about what this means for us, this is a story about renouncing evil. It's about a power encounter, a power encounter between the power of God and the power of evil. And as people in this world, if you are a Christian or not a Christian, if you are a believer or not a believer, you are in a power struggle. 
You are in a battle between the power of God and the power of the enemy. And it's important for us to acknowledge the power of the enemy. It's important for us to recognize that evil power affects us. It affects us in our hurts, in our wounds, in the oppressions that we carry. For some of us, it's a big thing. For others, it's a, it's a, for some, it's a dramatic thing. For others of us, it's a more mundane. This is a, a stronghold and a bondage the enemy is working in my life. But it's a challenge, too, to reject evil powers and look to God for deliverance, to look to him for what he can do, for the freedom that he wants to do. It is holy work to renounce evil. This isn't something that's just for especially messed up people. You know, like the really bad people. This isn't something that's saved for, you know, the basket cases or the, like, the really, really off-the-charts people. It's for, you, it's for you, too. All of us, no matter how mature in the Christian faith we are, no matter where we are in our spiritual life, especially if we're living for Jesus, are at risk of the devil's attacks. If he can't get you in a big way, he's going to want to get you in a small way. And the challenge for us today is to examine, is there an area in my life that's, the devil's got his finger in right now, a lie he's telling me, an oppression in my life that's just got me tied up, a stuck place, heaviness, something I've wanted to be free from for a long time and I just haven't been able to figure it out. Their heaviness that's been on you. you. Jesus wants to do something about that. In the early church, in the first few hundred years after Jesus, when they, whenever they were going to baptize somebody, this is like in the two or three hundreds after Jesus, when, it, when they were going to baptize somebody, it was a three-year discipleship process to get baptized. And literally every day you went to church, Every day, for three years, you went, and you got exercised of demons every day for two years, a three-year three year period. And they would, if someone, a mature Christian would pray over you every day that evil would not have a foothold in your life, that the devil would not have a strong, any strongholds in your life, that you would be made holy, that you would be made pure, that you would be free from the devil's schemes, that you would be able to resist temptation. They prayed that for three years. I love that. I think we could learn from that. And I think probably more of us, more of us, need to quit pretending that we are in total control of our lives and acknowledge that we have an enemy. We have an enemy who wants to trip us up, who wants to stop us, who wants to at least slow us down. We must acknowledge that. You received on your chair an orange handout with a few questions on it. We're going to take a few moments to do some work together as a church. I want you to be prayerful and mindful, paying attention to the Holy Spirit and what he's doing in you, what he's challenging in you. Take a look at that. You, might, you won't be able to fill everything out in it, and that's fine, but, but maybe there's a question, one or two, that you could answer. There's a comment that says, I am, I am like the seven sons of Sceva. I know Jesus by name. But I'm not really sure I know him for myself right now. I might even do good things. I might even know some stuff.
but I, know, I don't know that I would be recognized as someone who knows Jesus. Maybe that's you. Or the next one on there is, I belong to Jesus, but I can see that the enemy often influences me in this way. There's this, this thing that he trips me up on. There's this thing. The enemy just tries to trip me here, tries to slow me down, puts a speed bump in my path. Or maybe this is an area of woundedness. It's kind of a raw wound. I keep trying to get it to heal. It's just not healed yet. And the enemy is using that to tell me lies that are not true. A common way the enemy tries to trip me up is and maybe for some of you, you'd say, there's a bigger thing going on for me. It's deep. It's long. It's been here for a long time. And now that I think about it, it's maybe a little worse than I even thought. But I think there might be significant spiritual bondage in, in this area of my life. We're going to take some time to spend thinking about these questions and you just being in the presence of the Holy Spirit. You asking God to reveal to you whatever you need to see. You asking the Holy Spirit, help me to see what I need to see. We're going to sing. We're going to have a, a, a little bit of time to hear some scriptures and some meditation. But I'm going to invite you to do a few things. First of all, at the bottom of your orange paper, you, there's a little line. You can just tear off that bottom section. I want you to keep the top part, but the last question on there is, says, I renounce the work of the enemy in this area of my life. I renounce this. I don't want this in my life. I recognize it. I see it. I don't want it. It is not from God. I want this out of my life. That's for, you tear off that bottom section and you write down what that is. And in the story, what we have here is people come and they bring their scrolls and they bring all of the other spiritualistic things that they've been relying on outside of Jesus and they come and they burn them. They burn them publicly. And so I've got a fire pit here. We're not going to light a fire because fire codes. But um, you can see we've got some kindling here from first service. I invite you to, to pitch into that. I'll take this home today, light it on fire. I'll put the video up on our page. But it's a time for you to just say, this is what I'm renouncing. This is what does not have a place in my life. And so in just a moment, you'll have an opportunity to come forward and put that here. Also, prayer partners, if, if you're one of the prayer partners for today, would you come and just kind of spread around the front part of the sanctuary? What we see in the Bible is that God has given his power to believers to confess, to call out to God that, that, that believers will, that can, we, can, we can, as Christians, we can call out to God and he can break chains. And it can be just between us and God. But sometimes in the Bible we see people who are in need of a, of a friend, a spiritual friend. And so often we see people who carry a wounded person to Jesus. Or people who, who bring a demonized person to Jesus and say, hey, in community, 
We're, we're helping each other. And prayer partners are here to be community for you today. Some of you are carrying particularly heavy things, particularly complicated areas of oppression in your life, and it would be good for you to have a spiritual friend. They have come prayed up, they have been anointed with oil, and they are prepared to pray with you and to hear from you and to, to, to just simply lift your needs to God and, and be a spiritual friend and mentor to you in this moment. And so you'll have an opportunity, if you'd like to, to come and pray at the altar, come and pray with a prayer partner. We also have anointing oil here today. And oil is often used for the purposes of consecration and in prayers for healing. And no pressure to anybody, but if you would like to participate in that, we, we practice this as a means of grace, like we would communion or baptism, a physical thing that reminds us of God's presence and that God can use in a spiritual way in our lives. And so if you would like to be anointed with oil, the prayer partners will also, uh, are, will also ask you if you'd like to receive that, or you can tell them that you would like to receive that, and then they will anoint either your forehead or your hand with, with a sign of the cross. Let's take a few moments and pray. Ask God to reveal anything that is not of him. Anything unholy, any area of bondage, any area that the enemy keeps tripping you up. Anything you need to renounce. Oh. 